0: Hello, welcome back to the National Association for Primary Education podcast. My name is Mark Taylor, I'm the Vice Chair of NAEP and today we're delighted to be chatting to John Severs. Now he's the editor of Tez and he's going to take us on a journey from the Tez magazine which we all know and love to this focus of being fully online. And John tells us how this enables them to react and be able to give you the latest up to date information and be able to make sure that the best possible content is there for you at your fingertips at a time when you need it. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Severs. Hi, John, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. It's always really insightful, I think, for me to sort of hear the voice and the opinions and kind of the personality of people behind organisations and magazines and everything. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: No, pleasure to be here. And it's good to be on a, a podcast focused on the primary sector, which doesn't always have the voice it deserves.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that's why why NAEP specifically feels like it's, uh, it's such an Im- important thing being sort of um, non-political and having the chance just to sort of have that child first voice, as it were, for everyone involved, who's in, whether it's a parent, whether it's a teacher and everyone else involved in education. It's a really, really key factor, I think. So why don't we start with what's your role within, within Tez and, and, and exactly what your remit is to begin with? So I became
1: editor of Tez in, uh, January 2020, um, having features editor. And so for eight years, I ran sort of the teaching and learning and the research and a bit of policy for the magazine. And when I became editor, I then oversaw the whole operation and some people don't realize quite how broad Tez is. So we have international coverage. We have full news coverage. We have, um, research, teaching and learning, and a pretty extensive analysis, um, team as well, so I oversee all that and a bit of, a, a bit of event stuff we get involved with and, and a little bit of, um, podcasting ourselves and yeah, it's, it's quite a broad remit, but I think it's, it's varied and it allows me to get a really good overview of the sector.
0: And it's interesting um, taking the magazine digital. It's something that Nape has been been looking into, both in terms of you know what audiences like to do, and also, obviously, there's the practicality and the financial implications of those things. So talk us into how that discussion started and, and sort of the, the progress that that's been made.
1: Um, as we say much, really, it, it began in COVID, uh, the, the, for the lockdowns, the lockdowns. Beans were going to schools where not all staff were in those schools, or, you know, with the with the depleted uh, roles, with just the, the, just the disadvantaged children in. And um, not only that, we saw a huge upsurge in the online engagement for our content, and we realised that actually what schools needed was in time information. So they they didn't want to wait till Friday to find the latest news they need for. Uh, let's say the Lotus COVID regulations for schools or guidance, they needed it then and there. And so as our audience sort of shifted, and I think we worked out by the end of the pandemic, only about 1.5% of our audience were consuming us in print alone. It became a sort of a no brainer decision really to say, okay, how is that print publication functioning as part of our offering? And would our resource be better really putting into getting a new website optimized for uh our users and concentrate on that channel and that's that's what we did launching the website um the start of last the start of this year sorry
0: start of this year and i think i mean everybody's sort of first in first thought when you need any information is obviously the nearest thing to hand which is usually the phone <laughs> or, or yeah. tablet or, or wherever you happen to be um and uh, I think like say when when you've got sort of updates when you've got information and you've got the amount of content that you're creating like say having that kind of regular output I guess that that kind of changes how you can go about it as well so just talk us through that sort of the mindset change between like I say that regular print output compared to that sort of just in time information Is it, it's happening on a daily basis
1: yeah it's enabled us to be quicker it's also enabled us to build stories over time so um, we are able to put something out immediately and then we're able to update that same story as the story progresses across a day two days three days and that's important because where we where we want our our school or our readers to have the most up-to-date view of any topic at that moment and when you have a piece in print it sort of stays as it was it's it can't be changed someone's picking up a magazine two three weeks later they're seeing news and thinking that's the latest iteration of that whereas online you're updating those stories so that you do have the latest iteration it does bring challenges as well in the sense that a print magazine is a curated experience and i'm sure most of the listeners don't consume online media in a curated way as such so most homepage traffic for media outlets is pretty low most of the article traffic becomes to articles themselves so we've got to be quite aware about how we knit together news in online world for our readers, and we're launching a newsletter, a daily newsletter in the next few weeks. Where we say, "Okay, your inbox half six in the morning, seven in the morning. Here's everything we published yesterday." Because otherwise, readers are getting a very fragmented experience because they don't like going to a page. They prefer to come to. A letter that's personalised to them, or through social. I mean, large majority of our traffic comes through social channels because that's how people interact with us. I think we've got three hundred thousand followers on Twitter, about one hundred fifty thousand on Facebook, uh, over ten thousand on Instagram. This is how readers want to consume us, and we need to be reactive to that. Uh, and so, yeah, there's there's advantages and there's challenges.
0: And that's really interesting, that isn't it? Like you say, people. I've, and I, it's certainly something that we found is the sense that people are looking for answers, they're looking for solutions. They that there's an immediate issue that they're trying to solve, um, and with that comes that sort of snapshot of kind of like say it, it'll take you straight to an article or or it will solve that initial problem. But I think when you're involved as an organisation, like I say when you want a feel of of being part of something which is producing something regularly rather than just that initial thing, that's where that sort of problem goes. And I can see how the newsletter becomes like a like I say, not a homepage from a website point of view, but an actual home where people can feel like, ah, oh, right, I feel safe here. I kind of know all that information. I know that it's all, like I say, curated into such a way that this is exactly what I need. And so I think you start to interact with everybody, like I say, in different, different, different ways. Then you, you, you have the newsletter. You have on just the individual articles, and 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 I guess also now because the communication in the the two way conversations is something which obviously we didn't have so much a few years ago.
1: Yeah, and the good thing about the newsletter is, someone doesn't even have to click on the articles, they can get a sense, so you'll have some readers who will open that email, and they'll get a sense, just a re- as you say, a reassurance sense of what's happening, just from the headlines, then you'll have a cohort of readers who want to click on one or two, and you'll have a cohort of readers who will click on every single one. And I think the two of the newsletters you say, it's that reassurance each morning that you're up to date, and then the user themselves a bespoke experience by how much they want to engage with it and it leaves it quite democratic whereas the delivery of a big chunky magazine and the guilt sometimes associated I mean, we, we quite a few people spoke to us about the tez magazine guilt you know, this pile of magazines they hadn't quite got through yet and this feeling weighing down on them whereas this newsletter that should shoot into your inbox and just give you that quick shot in the morning or whenever you want to engage with it that day is is, is important i think
0: and and talk us through sort of like, say, that engagement in, in multiple sections. So I like to say, you've I guess you've got the, the members of staff or teachers who individually want to have access to this, but then you've sort of got schools generally and, and organisations that want to do that. And I guess that's where, like say, that personalised uptake makes a massive difference rather than just, oh, I came across it because I saw the magazine, either because it came to me or it happened to be on the staff room table or whatever that, 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 that kind of looked like for people.
1: Yeah, so we've got um... I think we've got a cohort of readers who are individual teachers. They tend to be middle or senior leadership in the MEN. Um, and their people who are access content for work purposes, Usually, um, They are asking articles to teachers. They're trying to their school improvement plan by putting a bit of weight around it in terms of the research we provide and and some of them do it for pleasure, like they just want to be engaging every day with the latest research and the latest news. We then have sort of a school function where schools take member, um, readerships uh, subscriptions for the magazine and and that tends to be a head teacher or SLT, and they're using it for their own CPD, they're also using for the, the CPD, the school feeds into It's internal newsletters. It feeds into uh, staff development meetings. It it feeds into uh, planning meetings for the future. And that's how you can begin to see how the policy elements and the uh, learning elements and the analysis is really important. So we have three teams, uh, editorial teams, which is the news team who are telling you what's going on. So that's policy, regulatory stuff around Ofsted, uh, exams, you know, just the stuff that's most integral to schools. And then we have our analysis team who then goes okay what does this mean and why do you need to know about it which is you know let's say off changes a regulation that's the news piece and then the analysis team will take that and go okay this is how it's going to impact your school in the next few weeks or the next few months or the next couple of years and this is why it's important that you look at this and this is some advice about what you can do so those two work in quite close tandem and then you have the teaching and learning team who are doing the more traditional test stuff that i used to do which is here's some research about this element of teaching and learning, here's some, how, what someone's tried in that area, or here's what, here's what this research suggests is the best way of mentoring in nature, for example, and it's, it's very practical. So those three areas are sort of, there are grey areas in between each one, but we like to think of it as a natural progression where, you know, we've got you covered however deep you want to go into those topics
0: yeah and that makes sense and, and it continues on you know perfectly from what you said in terms of how people come to the magazine now as well because like I say if you're just interested in what's going on as opposed to like I say having that sort of CPD kind of focus and and, and and curating it for people and I think especially the research side and, and the comment side based on sort of real understanding and and because things are changing so much and as we know there's sort of being time poor so much in schools as well I think having something which is a real critical eye but also like say with the, the authority of saying actually I know that <laughs> what, what I'm reading what I'm able to, to comprehend from this is something which I. Can can really trust and then i can dive into it as and when it's important to me
1: yeah we've had um, a piece from dylan william over the weekend a big interview with him around assessment and what his vision for assessment would be based a little bit on his his and paul black's work around formative assessment but also how he viewed the impact of the pandemic and how he viewed statute um, assessment but the interesting thing there was how people what people took from it so some people wanted the policy debate and they had it some people wanted the practical school level okay what do we do with this at school some people just were just interested in assessment at a classroom level and some people love dylan william to put it bluntly and just wanted to talk about that and so we saw all these suddenly from that one article you saw all these satellite conversations happening across social media be that on facebook twitter instagram um even in some of the sort of teachery forum type things from some of the organizations and i think we're doing our job properly if we're enabling the space for people to to come at that content in their own way it's particularly important around best practice stuff we do so we had a really interesting piece about someone had tackled spelling in key stage two and how they would built a a new spelling sort of approach um that generated some really interesting discussion because there were literacy leads in primary coming to 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 look at that and saying oh i wouldn't done it that way it was all very civil actually i mean social media gets a bit of a bit of a bad rap for being this like hellhole of animosity, but actually teachers in the main really productive conversations were happening around that. And it wasn't the person who wrote it wasn't saying this is how you should do it. This was a teacher saying, this is what I've tried and this is the outcome. And it may only be specific to my context, but I'm just sharing and that sharing element, I think done in the right way is really productive for, for our readers.
0: And I think that's a really important point, isn't it? Because I think more and more within schools, we want the the autonomy to be able to do what's best for us, what's best for our for our pupils, what's best for our school or, or the or the wider community. And so therefore you're going to have different outlooks and, and different ways of doing things. And I think having access to that sort of those broad ideas, which you can pick and choose and, and then bring that in is really important. But I guess because so much of what's prescriptive, that's kind of where you get some of the animos- animosity sometimes because people are sort of thinking, no, but it needs to be like this and I, I have the answer, which seems to be the way it should be.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) so much of the uh, DFE stuff we report on is stop telling me how to teach. And I think sometimes that's legit. I think sometimes the DFE is being too prescriptive, but sometimes it's just guidance. And I think think we're very sensitive in how we present our content to always make it look like, here's an idea. What do you think? Even with the research stuff, because we're also always very careful to ask the research what the caveats are. So... You know it's very easy to say study finds that i don't know uh intervention for literacy at the age of four produces great results at year six and then we say okay what's the caveat to this research please could you like give us an outline oh, it was done in four schools in central london okay well it's not the biggest pool size and it's a london context rather than say i don't know i live in portsmouth so portsmouth even hour and a half from london is still very very different to the london context you know demographically regionally funding in funding terms and a uh, i think if we're honest and transparent about what we're reporting then it allows teachers the space to to feel comfortable consuming that content whereas i think if it was reported in a didactic way you're going to get a a a very um binary reaction to it from a teacher as i would if someone told me how to do journalism i'd be like well I know best actually. Or I, if, if it was a, along my ideology I'd be like, this is the best piece of journalism. Yeah, this advice is perfect, but if it was against my ideology it would be, well, this is just rubbish. Whereas if we take a bit more of a caveated approach, we can have a bit more interesting discussion.
0: Nineteen ten is a long time ago when when sort of it all sort of started and and got going. So I mean, in terms of your, your knowledge of that history, but also in terms of the amount of time that you spent there, how have you seen seen things change? Um, I guess both positively and negatively, but in the sort of that sort of historical kind of feeling of, of what you're trying to produce, but also that they like to say as we've talked already about the reality of the practical interactions as well. I
1: think the core role of Tez has always been the same, which is to be a professional voice to the sector. I think how that is um is is rolled out is very different so it was very top down it was very much you know we're a magazine to tell teachers what to do if you look at the archives from the sort of 1910 and 11 onwards it was a publication of about teaching and about education and i think the shift that's happened in the last 20 years it's become a publication for teachers and by teachers which i think is a really important distinction because when you have something that's too top down, it doesn't resonate and it's not useful. And I think the shift that I've done since I came in 18 months ago is to really accelerate that and say, OK, everything we do that is not useful to a teacher, stop doing it because it's just a distraction. What we need to do is use our time to really understand the school context and use our time to make the best possible use uh, product a good example was the keeping children safe in education article we did about about two weeks ago now three weeks ago so the new guidance came out a huge document a good use of our time for that was to go through find out what had changed find out the key points that would be most difficult write that into a really nice consumable article that people could share and over one weekend I think it got close to a hundred thousand uh, views from the teaching community and some really positive comments and it's still being read now and I think that story might not have got done 15 years ago 10 years ago even because well they've got they've got it in the guidance why would they need us to do it again this isn't a story and I, I've gone a big believer in sort of citizen journalism and by that mean not journalism by citizens but journalism for citizens where you do take complex documents and crunch them in a responsible way and so I believe in that type of journalism and thankfully in the last 18 months we've seen it really pay off
0: and and you talk there in terms of of that approach of who you're doing it for and who's actually involved creating it so is there those sort of opportunities like you say from sort of a, a teacher input or people working within within the profession to kind of get their voice out and how, how does that work within that vision that you just spoke about
1: so the news team are all internally produced content so they're specialist news reporters and you know we wouldn't have sort of citizen news reporters if you like or teacher news reporters but the analysis team and the features team are in the main commissioning editors so what they do is 60 70 probably up to 80 percent of their coverage is is commissioning teachers and people in education to to write to react to provide best practice guides and it's it's a struggle sometimes to find primary representation so what we find and this may not surprise our your primary listeners is that secondary are very, they're not shy in coming forward. So we have lots of um, secondary teachers saying, I'd like to write or secondary head teachers. I'd like to do this. And for primary, it's a bit more proactive on our side. We're going out more and finding people to write because there just isn't that supply of teachers. What we'd love is to have, you know, any, in the main, it'd be really nice to have more middle leadership in primary writing for us. So your literacy leads, your numeracy leads, your safeguarding leads, We'd love those people to get in touch with us and, and with Dan, so it's dan.worth at tez.com and Helen Amass, which is helen.amass at tez.com. Uh, you can find them on Twitter. They are always up for ideas. They really want to hear what you're struggling with. And the best way of pitching something is to send them and say, look, I had this problem on X and I did Y and it worked or it didn't work. And we're as interested in the didn't work as the did work. And that's a great way for Helen to say, okay, that's interesting, we can put that out. And for Dan, it's like, let's say you're a literacy lead and you're upset at the latest Ofsted uh, English guidance uh, subject review, he'd love to hear from you and say, you know what, I've I've just looked at this, this is completely irrelevant to my daily working life and here's why and here's what it should have said. That's that's a really good thing for us as well. But at the moment, we're having to proactively go out and find those people to write. And it'd be really nice to have some more voices, particularly Key Stage 1 um i think it was that we we do all right in eYFS and we've got quite a healthy supply of year six although we would need more for both but key stage one is a real area where we could do with a bit more uh more
0: people coming forward so if you're listening and you've actually already written for the for primary first our, our nape's journal then um there you are there's your, there's your next article to be able to, yeah, to yeah. get involved and, and, and to go in um I suppose we should also talk about the fact that, you know, such an audience in terms of, of the amount of people, where people live and that kind of thing. So talk about that sort of breadth of, of, of what you cover in terms of sort of geographically as well as the actual content itself.
1: Yeah, so we have uh, dedicated reporters in Scotland who cover Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. We have John Roberts, our, our senior reporter. He's based in um, the northeast um we cover the whole of the uk area uh then we have dan who's the analysis editor who's also our international editor so he covers all international schools as well in terms of teaching and learning helen amas who runs that section she covers research from all over the world so we've had spanish american japanese um we had a russian piece as well so we we are looking around the world to see what, what, what's happening. For example, in Russia, you're not allowed to wear your shoes in the school. You have to swap for school slippers. And there's a guy in Bournemouth who's done some research on this called Stephen Heppel, who found that barefoot learning was massively uh, was massively useful to pupils, and create, especially in primary. And all the usual caveats applied, but just having that little look and the little jolt of a different idea from a different system really gets conversations started and so all the teams really have a remit of saying okay what ideas a classroom is a classroom wherever you are in the world and we've had classrooms on boats in bangladesh or classrooms in donut shaped schools in japan and but the the fundamentals are the same yeah you're teaching kids stuff and what are people doing in different ways that could spur an idea in a teacher in this country and i think that's really important to keep your head up because under the stress and strain of a school system it's easy to get your head down and our job is to provide that outward look in a way that isn't too onerous on the individual teacher
0: and i think what you mentioned there's really really important in terms of there are things that we can change and we can change quite quickly you know in like say bringing all that information from different areas it's not always about how you're teaching any given subject or the system itself but just even opening that conversation and, and I've spoken to Stephen before as well in terms of environments within schools and just even having those conversations just oh right hadn't quite thought of it like that and you know this person sitting in this part of the classroom compared to that i like say or having having shoes on inside or not or, or how that works and I think that must open one a debate within your school but it's a fantastic thing to be able to have that communication with your pupils as well
1: yeah and I think it's um some of this stuff sounds balmy, right when you when you first look at it and you think oh, God, I can't have an impact and then people try stuff and they go, Do you know what? It actually made a, a difference. I remember my sister who's a primary teacher, she did a what well, she was part of the EF Growth Mindset trial and I remember her talking to me about start Growth Mindset isn't gonna do anything. And then she works in a very, very deprived area of Hampshire and by the end of it she was just like you wouldn't believe just how much impact this this little thing has made and she said, I would have completely if I wasn't part of the trial I'd have written it off and I think our our remit as tez is to get more people to take a chance and to try something while acknowledging that the system as it is doesn't necessarily promote risk taking
0: yes yeah um and and how how do you find that in terms of like say the system is what it is and it's you know everyone's working within it but in terms of what you think I guess influence isn't necessarily the right word but in terms of comment in terms of how it may progress in the future and also how people can sort of work within it for like to say the, those positive situations comments articles which come through I think the um,
1: in terms of our influence over that I think it's important that it's the teacher influence so if we get the right blend of comment and we're really keen like we are not political we are not ideological so we want a really broad range of opinion. But out of that, you can still get a consensus direction of travel. And I think it's really important, for example, on let's say the cog- the role of cognitive science in education, which is heavily pushed by the government and is leading to some quite prescriptive teaching guidance. I think it's important that at TES, we challenge that um, position. And through our pro writers on CogSci and our more critical writers of CogSci, we've got a really nice position now where we're saying Do you know there's some really good stuff here but actually we need to be really cautious about how we use it and I think that that is where the influence comes because with the voice of the sector I think it's I think in general teachers want to be left alone in terms of teachers know their, their, their classrooms the best they know their pupils the best and are what we should be doing is helping them achieve their goals within that context and i think if if a government or ofsted or whoever else wants to influence what happens in the school in a positive way then they need to start from that position which is a teacher knows that classroom best so what are you doing to maximize their potential in that classroom rather than what are you doing to maximize your particular ideology at any time is is my view
0: and what's your sense of of how things will progress in 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 sort of the the near sort of me, medium term do you think that we're at a tipping point in 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 any particular area that that people will be interested in
1: i think it's clear that the government wants a sort of whole career cpd agenda so they want a bit of a medical model where a teacher's constantly progressing throughout their career it's not just this I've done my ITT I'm not going to leadership and I'm I'm a teacher now and I think there's positives there I think most teachers want to improve and they want to do consistent CPD across their career what I don't think they want is to be told specifically what that looks like and I think what we're heading for at the moment is a very controlled system so You know, if you if you add up all the different elements of policy that have come out in the last two or three years and COVID sort of accelerated this because it gave government a hell of a lot of control centrally, what you're looking at is a is is a very prescribed profession and it's very anti-conservative, which is why you're getting in the lords at the moment some Tory peers saying, hang on a minute, this is what's going on here. We we want decentralisation, yet this seems very centralised. And ironically, you talk to the Labour education team, and they're very much keen on teacher autonomy. It's sort of like a swapped <laughs> political ideology almost. But I think, you know, if, we, if we're if we looking at the direction of travel, it, it does look like more control. And I think if you look at the stats around teacher well-being, if you look at the retention stats, if you look at why people leave, I think it's quite clear that people want to be trusted to do their job. And I think The more that is prescribed, which is happening, the less likely people are to stay. And I think that's a really dangerous situation we're heading towards that needs to be pretty urgently redressed.
0: Because I guess we are going to very soon get to the point, not only is there going to be teacher shortages, but we're also going to have not the, the depth of understanding um, I guess if you have a very young workforce or, or it's not quite as sort of reflective across every age group then what happens is, is you only know what you know which comes from your training but also comes from your experience it might have been you you, you were in school yourself not that long ago yeah. and it's only with wisdom which I guess comes with experience and, and the amount of years you've been in the profession that you kind of can see that overall idea of we can see where it's going now, but we've seen maybe we've been there before, or maybe we want to we want to look at it in this particular way. And I guess the more people leave earlier, then you 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 just don't have that, and and I think that could be very dangerous.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have one of the youngest professions in the world already at thirty seven. I think is the average age. The school workforce census came out last week, and if you look at the uh, the biggest drop off of teachers, it's in that sort of seven to twelve years into a career stage where teachers are leaving. And like you say, if you've got the experience, you know, you can be taught everything in the world, but applications are a hell of a different thing. And not only does does knowing how stuff lands and knowing how to react to a class important, experience is important in terms of confidence and being able to pick and choose a bit. I mean, we talked about prescription. And I think people who've been around a lot longer than me will say government's always been prescriptive in one way or another. What the difference is, is how much a school on a day to day level listens and how much they work within that prescription to do what they want and what they think is best for the kids. And I think the more you skew to a younger age group who hasn't got the experience to say, like you say, I've seen this before, don't worry about it. Or, yeah, yeah, it says that, but we can get away with this. I think you're going to see a, a degradation of the profession, professional standards, if you like, and autonomy because this, the profession skews too too young. And I really like to see some of those teachers like my mum taught reception for 40 years, you know, she was a brilliant reception teacher uh, and before she retired. And I think, you know, by the end, watching how she reacted, you know, all that experience you could see. And it was I think we're in danger with the funding crisis. We're in danger with the the way budgets are working out with um, energy funding and other costs of I mean, you can see it in some of the data schools are skewing to cheaper, younger teachers. I think that would be a real, real detriment, not just to the kids, but to those young teachers, because if they don't have those experienced role models to help to guide them, you know, we're really doing them a disservice, and they're not going to be able to pass that on for the next generation.
0: Yeah, and I guess we should probably touch on on money and, and the financial situation. You know, budgets have been tight for a long time now, but you know, as we're recording this, you know, there's uh, real strikes about to happen. There's been talk in the media today in terms of teachers and NHS workers and Do you you think this is going to be a problem which actually does involve children either having to stay at home or or schools actually, even despite the COVID and pandemic and and wanting to do the best for their children that we may end up with a situation where schools may be closing for these financial reasons?
1: I think schools are in a really tricky position Mm Moment, the level of outgoings not matching the level of incoming. Um, And as a head teacher, you know, I talked to some of these head teachers and they're saying, well, I've cut every year for three years now, and there's nothing left to cut. And I think at that point, there's some really difficult decisions to be made. And I think HT, our NEU, NAST have a really difficult balancing act because of the, the COVID pandemic, because of the disruption to learning, because of the parent parent's views about how to react to that situation. And I think it's a very delicate relationship with parents and and communities in general. And I think it's a bit like the the campaign a couple of years ago that really um, showcased the individual financial struggles of individual schools. I think that's where you need to go. Parents need to be more aware that the funding crisis is having a direct impact on their child rather than education generally I think education generally is a really dangerous message to go down I think this is how it's impacting your local school is much more powerful and much and you'd hope that the situation can be resolved without further disruption but I think that's one for the unions to to try and try and work out
0: and I think that's a really positive point there is that actually the only thing you can actually do is what you can do yourself and that might be like say getting information about how your school is working and and its situation it might also be about how your life as a parent as someone who's working and and being involved in the community can actually help Um, and and that's not necessarily even a financial thing but in terms of if you want the your son or daughter's classroom to look different in some way you know what do you have to offer you know what uh, advice do you have you know what are the skill sets you have who are the people that you work with what are the organizations that you work with that can actually sort of give teachers and schools and uh, that immediate direct access, whether it fits in with part of the curriculum they're doing or, or days where they're able to sort of have a conversation with someone they wouldn't normally do. And I think some of that can be financial, but some of it can just be the having that initial conversation and saying, how can we actually have a positive influence based on, on what you need within the school?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we need to get back to don't we? Like what you just described there is a, is a real community school and and I think I guess in in, I guess primaries have been pretty good at that more than secondary in the sense that primaries because the smaller numbers are very good at being a community school but we could do more and a lot of the onus on that has to be on the communities rather than the school we have to be proud of our local schools and we have to want to help whether our kids are there or not and a lot of the time local school is helped by the parents and then you know we've moved on so we don't really that school's not on our radar anymore but we're still living in that community and that that school should still be part of our our lives. In secondaries, when you've got secondaries going up to sort of 14, 15 form entry, which some of them are now, I mean, it's very, 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 very difficult on that side to create that sense of community. And I I don't think it's a very huge surprise that the most successful free schools that the government promotes consistently are a maximum of around four form entry. They're more like primary schools than secondary schools. And because it's easier to create that sense of community, so I think there's a huge amount of learning for the system to look more closely at primary schools and say, okay, what do they do really well? And I don't think that happens because primary is sort of it's just you know so frequently not talked about at government levels. It's so frequently secondary that becomes the focus, and then oh we, we'll just filter that down to primary. Well, can we not filter stuff up? And I think that's something that this does need to change.
0: Yeah, and it certainly is something that NAPA is really keen on is the fact that any given day, any given part of a child's education is important. It's not just preparation for the future. And I think that's where primary often gets into trouble in terms of not having those conversations is because it's just there getting ready for secondary school. and And, and actually like I say the way that you work the way that you interact and and actually just giving the child the environment they need at the time that they have it is is really key and i think that actually isn't just about being in an age group up to age 11 it's actually about children and and humans generally you know having what you need at any given time into that kind of like i said before in terms of that well-being and mindset and growth mindset and all those things some of those things are the same across the board it's not just necessarily age age specific um so so just as we. As we up tell us you know you you mentioned before about what you've tried to to push it and 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 develop things in the last 18 months or so what will that look like sort of in another 18 months or or two years in terms of of what you're able to implement
1: well what a question so I hope that in in 18 months time every school will see us as an integral part of their daily mission so that that means that if the teacher has a problem, they can turn to Tes. If the subject lead, uh, the the T have a problem, turn to Tes. If the head, executive head, mat CEO, governors have a problem, they can come to Tes. And that doesn't necessarily mean doing more content for us. It means making better choices and presenting that content in better ways. And uh, what we're really keen to do at the moment is we've made a big shift of of direction. And the next 18 months is honing that with the feedback from our readers to make sure that we are that, that useful tool. I mean, what we like to say is on any given week, what have we done for each teacher? And we have each teacher in each phase in our mind saying, okay, this is this type of teacher, that's that phase leader, that's that leadership position. Have we done anything for them today? And that should expand our, you know, for example, we've traditionally not been good in special schools. Like we haven't got great coverage in special schools. Well, we should have. You know traditionally we haven't had great key stage one coverage like i spoke about at the start because it's more more key stage two and EYFS teachers are more proactive so that we know more about it but we're, i'd love to know more about key stage one my kids are in key stage one at the moment so i'm like you know i'm getting first-hand experience but so that in 18 months i'd like to be much more comprehensively covered in terms of our content and much have much more comprehensive readership that is coming to us every week because we are a trusted
0: source of information fantastic well john thank you so much for spending your time and, and giving us sort of behind the scenes scenes look of everything and and like i say that sort of call to arms and for key stage one teachers but also anyone who'd, who'd like to sort of get involved and know more tell tell them the, the the best place to go and we'll have this on the show notes as well but the best place for them to sort of go get involved or get in touch
1: so I think the first we, we are preparing a contact sheet, which I'll make sure I send over when it's ready so that people, you can send that out. But for the moment, the best two people and I'll spell it out is Dan says D-A-N dot worth, W-O-R-T-H at com, T-E-S dot com and Helen Amass, that's so H-E-L-E-N dot A-M-A-S-S at com. First instance, you know, just a paragraph to say, here's, I'm this person, this is what I've tried or this is what I'd like to write about, or this is annoying me at the moment. They're the three things I usually say to people who are pitching for the first time. What's annoying you? Tell us. What have you tried and it's been good? Tell us. And what have you tried and it's failed? And the chances are one of those three things will catch the eye of one of our editors and you'll you'll be commissioned before you know it.
0: Fantastic. Well, John thanks so much for being here. It's, it's fascinating and, and I love, it's why I love podcasting so much to get that real sort of personality and idea and, and, and the sense of, of, of what people are doing behind the, the printed words or, or like you say the, the, the click on a, on a phone. So yeah, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.